you know, cool. Driver! And welcome to the Interstate Wrestling Podcast, the wrestling fan podcast that is bringing you on a journey of joy, adoration, enthusiasm, exploration, total nerdism into the world of wrestling. I'm your co-host, James. And I'm Josh Mordecai. Excited to talk to you tonight about a whole stretch of thing, another chewy chunk of wrestling history we got ahead of us today. Sticking with the theme of just the biggest topics we can find and dive in headfirst into them, just like a like a light tube. <laughs> I was going to go with uh, like Harley Race to fit in with the, the theme of tonight's episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I'm still in that deathmatch realm. I, I'm, I'm still reeling from uh, some of the uh, mania uh, events that I saw. Yeah, I was going to try to find it. I have it somewhere on my desk, but my desk is a mess. I have from Pro Wrestling Tees an autographed Harley Race photo. Speaking of Harley Race, and oh, there it is. That's one of the few that like I've really kind of kept pristine out of the uh, uh, pro wrestling crate and i sent it not long before he died so holy cow that's one of those keep it in the envelope so you can find a frame type of photos yeah no kidding what a piece of memorabilia that's incredible yeah pretty great yeah still completely reeling from mania aren't we and really tonight's topic is going to be fundamentally about the wealth and choice in wrestling isn't it just historically and as it's come full circle again but uh wanted to ask have you been catching the stuff on a and E, one of the channels here, I guess WWE are putting out two programs that have been fun to watch, and I just wanted to give them a shout out. They're a little campy, they're a little, you know, kitschy. One is biographies, and they're doing sort of eight in a row. They've done Steve Austin, they've done Roddy Piper. The most recent one was Macho Man. Nothing revelationary in the details and the story they're telling, but there seem to be new interviews and new, you know, like in the Roddy Piper one. There's lots of interviews with his kids that are are interesting, you know. That's kind of been neat to watch. But the one that I wanted to throw past you mm-hmm. was they're doing this like treasures episode, like the most wanted treasures. It seems like we've touched on before whether the Hall of Fame needs, doesn't need, warrants a brick and mortar site, especially to validate inductees, validate all of this memorabilia, the artifacts they've collected over the year. And it seems to be, this series seems to be a marker towards that, that Triple H, Stephanie, as the, you know, the anchors of the program, if you will, ascending this NXT development star along with some of the WWE legends out into the wide world to find missing artifacts. So the first one was Mick Foley and trying to find an original Mr. Socko. And it's just been neat. Again, it's kind of goofy. It's kind of dumb. Well worth checking out if you've not seen it. Yeah, I've just seen some clips. Like I saw The Undertaker finding his Phantom of the Opera mask and the purple jacket. And I saw that clip. But it does seem like it's just like a 30 minute nostalgia bomb. Yeah, I think you would raise as well. It's kind of got that Porn stars, P-A-W-N, just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they find these artifacts and then the sort of bathroom with the owners, which incidentally, the couple episodes I've seen, uh, you know, like the Undertaker one, it's like, oh yeah, I've got that in a box in a garage. <laughs> it's like, well, just give it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I hope they are planning to actually like do something with those 
maybe like towards the end of the season, they talk about breaking ground on a building or something. Yeah. Because like we said before, if they're near Orlando, you take the kids to Disney and then you hop off to the Hall of Fame before your flight takes off or you hit your limit at Epcot. There's so many options or Universal if you're a Universal fan, but there's so much to do down there. And with Full Sail, that would be the perfect spot for it. Prime tourism destination, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Have I told you my uh, my Smithsonian story, speaking of wrestling memorabilia? No, no. So for those who don't know, I have a background in history. So I went to the Smithsonian, and I get to the top of the stairs, and I turn to the right, and it's Lincoln's top hat, which is like an area of like ton of study for me, right? So I'm like looking at Abraham Lincoln's top hat, and then I turn, and directly across from it is Ric Flair's robe and boots. And I was just like spinning in place, trying to decide which one actually spend more time. <laughs> That's amazing. It was the Josh Mordecai Memorial Quadrant right there. <laughs> <laughs> whether you should divert your attention to something so prominent in American history, or whether you should divert your attention to something so prominent in American history. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess it's two wrestlers memorabilia, considering Lincoln had, uh, had that background too. That's amazing. As we sort of start to hit the accelerator into our topic tonight, one more thing to throw past you that will tie into this in the spirit of James calling outcomes completely fucking wrong on the <laughs> Interstate Wrestling podcast. Hopefully no spoilers if you haven't caught this yet, but Finjuice did not drop the Impact Tag Team Championships. Yeah. That's wild. And of course, Kenny took all the belts, but that I think was expected. Yeah, definitely kind of saw him running with that belt collector thing. But yeah, pretty surprising that that relationship is seemingly not just staying open, but is kind of becoming more solidified by the show. This really sort of paired into where we'll go on the conversation tonight. John Moxley is defending the NJ uh, US title on Dynamite this coming week again to date stamp Evergreen Recordings. His Yuji Nagata match, right? Right. Yeah. Which is wild. The crossovers, the collaboration. The Forbidden Door, as we've said several times now, to quote one of my favorite Michael Caine movies, they were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. Each new announcement is still kind of staggering. Right. I totally thought Finjuice were dropping the belts back to the Good Brothers and they'd sort of fade back to Japan at that point, but that's certainly not the direction, is it? But what do you say, Josh? Once again, we're teasing and dancing around the main body of the conversation. Certainly, as we've highlighted now throughout the episodes we've done so far, wrestling has come back to a prominent place of choice and so many different products, so much to consume. And we thought we'd hit the highway and and take a look at some of that historical component of that. When the territory started and you had all those choices, the evolution of WCW and WWF slash E. And it's come full circle again. You know, you've got so much choice in wrestling and we, uh, mm-hmm. we're fans of it, aren't we? Yeah. We thought we'd do a dive into it. So. Why don't we hit the highway and uh, let's talk about the abundance, the embarrassment of riches in wrestling. Hell yeah, let's do it. So again, big, massive, meaty topic. Tonight's episode is 9,000 years of wrestling. (laughs) You know, joking aside, the choice. The abundance of wrestling in present day is ace to see back, but it's, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same is the same. Mm-hmm. Going back to the, the 60s, 70s and early 80s, there was tons of choice in wrestling between all of the different territories and different promotions. 
some really notable stuff. And I know I think we could stand to have kind of a dedicated conversation around that at some point in the future as well. But where does sort of the funnel start wide open for you? Where is all this choice in the territories begin for you? Well, I think like getting into wrestling kind of after the fact, I was very much on the tail end of territories, but I've tried to kind of dig in. I actually have written down a book that I'm going to have to grab before we do any type of like full territory deep dive. But I really, like you said, kind of first become familiar with it in like the 70s and 80s when you have your NWA, when Vince Jr. starts to come in is kind of when the history of it kind of starts with me and kind of the change in the interplay that starts to happen when Vince Jr. does come in and some of the moves that happen to shift from territories to kind of this pendulum of two big companies, one big company, two big companies, one big company, and us being back in that kind of multiple companies thing now. So like that era that you just mentioned is kind of where my history really starts with it. Same deal for me. It's funny because I I remember at a point in time just thinking reflectively of stars like Hulk Hogan and such not really realizing that they existed pre-sort of WrestleMania. Mm -hmm. But then seeing some of that stuff where they did, Mm -hmm. again, I was probably, it's in my original inception as a fan. What WWF, what Vince Jr. set out to do was sort of bring a single product together on a national stage. Mm -hmm. Obviously, did that very successfully because in my purview, in my perception of it at the time, I didn't know anything existed outside of WWF and didn't know anything predated WWF. What Vince set out to do with shrinking down or nationalizing the territories into a single organization essentially worked, didn't it? Obviously. Yeah. And the book, and like I said, we'll probably come back to it. It's called Death of the Territories by Tim Hornbaker. So I'm definitely going to hunt that down. And I read an article from Voices of Wrestling about it. And what it seems like part of his big argument is that Vince McMahon wasn't necessarily doing anything innovative. He was just doing it really well. So he's starting to consolidate territories by scooping up their big stars. So when Hogan comes in the AWA, the hope is maybe I can pull some of those viewers to my product. Right. Because he's the big name. Same with Bobby Heenan and Mean Gene Okerlund coming from the AWA. And he's kind of building his roster around these people to pull people from Vern Gagne to the New York product. And Jim Crockett starts doing the same thing in the South as WCW starts to form as being this kind of last stand of the NWA against the WWF. And the other thing that they mentioned, which we'll definitely come back to, is just the money that Vince had to do this from the start. So getting the company from his dad, getting a loan from his dad, taking some big financial chances with the money that he had allowed him to kind of consolidate and become the face of wrestling. Right. It's one of those like Coca-Cola of professional wrestling all around the world is recognized as the product. And of course you had, I mean, thinking about some of the stars across those territories, you, you know, Jerry Lawler was instrumental in the Memphis stuff. Dusty was instrumental, the the Florida Georgia scene, mm-hmm. Stampede Wrestling stuff in Canada, like the Stu Hart stuff that there was lots of these pockets of big, mm-hmm. big promotions. Yeah. The Von Erics in Texas with WCCW. The Von Erics, Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that's where those wrestling families, those wrestling dynasties come from, isn't it? Like you mentioned, all those names that come up and become the faces of wrestling are all from those areas. I mean, Kerry Von Erich as a Texas Tornado comes in and becomes a bigger name, like Intercontinental mid-card big name for a while. Hart Family, Dusty, Ric Flair, for God's sake, coming from uh, NWA. Yeah. Yeah. Kurt Hennig, another AWA guy, Mr. Perfect, too. Obviously, we both lie in a similar timeline as it evolves. Mm-hmm. I didn't witness any of the territories in real time. It didn't It didn't exist in my purview. Thinking back to it reflectively as a fan now, thinking back to it when you were a fan at the time, mm-hmm. 
thinking presently about the choice we've got in wrestling again all the different promotions and i guess i'm throwing a, a massive question on the table here did a single nationalized product really land i mean it's great to have choice but when you look back at some of the classic era of what Vince was doing, it really set the mold, didn't it? So mm-hmm. for me, I guess, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer to that. And that's sort of this exploration as a fan, isn't it? As it really did work, but I really like all the choice. So I guess I want my cake and eat it. Where do you lie? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it landed. It obviously revolutionized pro wrestling because it went from you see the same guys in your territory all the time. And maybe the NWA champion comes through to these are the 30 wrestlers everybody knows. And then just kind of some of the methods of snapping up people to kind of condense. I think when wrestling works best is when there's multiple competing promotions. Because if you look at the years where WWE was like really not good, kind of in those early kind of post-attitude era, some of the kind of forgetful stuff in the early 2000s, before TNA really starts to take off, they're not pushing anything like they were with WCW. Kind of that weird period where TNA becomes not great. WWE starts to slow down because they don't have anything to push against. So that's one of the big things on the big scale, I think, is just that back and forth of who's going to come out on top. Yeah, that's an excellent point, isn't it? It sort of leads to a point I'm sure we'll touch on momentarily. When the Monday Night Wars were happening, it sort of forced the products when there were multiple to raise their game. Competition, to healthy extent, is a good idea, isn't it? And you sort of see that when WWE became its own big standalone entity, the only measure it had to set the bar against was itself for a point in time. And it's really driving the product again, isn't it, at the moment? You know, it's causing people to raise their game, thinking about this forbidden door keep being kicked open, the doors blown off. It's indicative that there's creativity in the storytelling, there's creativity in the product, there's evolution in the product, you know? Yeah, and especially there's rumors now that WWE is going to start working with MLW, kind of in that same relationship they had with Evolve a couple years ago. Right. Dario Cueto from Lucha Underground, which has been like dead for years, just showed up on an MLW show talking about Azteca Underground. So now you have that additional layer of if they go with this kind of new model of not necessarily snapping up promotions, but working with promotions, then where does that lead? That's got to be the big difference, isn't it? To say objectively, using the example of Evolve and not to jump too, too far to present day, but WWE did have these relationships. Progress essentially became NXT UK, things of that nature, right? Right. But it still felt a little bit like the big shark eating the little fish and swallowing them up. Whereas what you're seeing now is, for example, on this past week's Dynamite, Kenny was swanning around with all four belts that he's got. So the AAA belt was visible on AW programming, as is the Impact belts and vice versa. Like The coexistence Mm -hmm. is not new because, again, going back to the history of the territories, Mm -hmm. you would have these collaborations like the Memphis guys would go to Florida and their two big stars would have a fight, have matches to kind of independently and collaboratively promote each other wouldn't they it's that sort of again big shark eating the little fish that sort of shrunk down the choices for a period of time isn't it yeah and i think wwe is in this like weird limbo where they're not sure which direction to go in because they're still a guy will get big on the indies for a year and a half and all of a sudden he's in the property of the performance center shirt right like alex zane and ben carter just got signed and i don't think i saw their names at all more than two years ago on shows i think alex zane showed up at one of those gcw backyard 4th of July shows, kind of out of nowhere, and now has an NXT contract. 
and kind of the Brit rest issue, like you said, with that becoming basically NXT UK, and now what is the British wrestling scene like today, when 10 years ago, however long ago, when we were going to that Beyond show, it was like the innovative thing, and now it's kind of under that WWE umbrella. So I, I don't think that they're fully committed yet to that new let's work together, as opposed to staying in that old Vince, let's take their top stars so they have to watch us kind of monopolize it idea. So it'll be interesting to see how fully that shift comes for them. Yeah, big time. You know, we're touching there, going back to the history for a moment, you've got all of these little promotions, you've got some big families around the North American continent. It all sort of ultimately starts to converge into initially a single national product, but then Ted Turner starts to get involved and you start to see WCW appear, don't you? Mm -hmm. And from, from the late 80s through 2002, there's a good period of 15 years, you know, decade and a half or so, yeah. where there are two giants in wrestling on a national stage. As we've sort of talked about before, in its original time, in its original time on TV, I didn't see a lot of WCW, and we'll, we'll get into some reasons around that, at least from my perception as a fan at the time. But you heavily followed WCW stuff, didn't you? So mm -hmm. chat me through like when that becomes prominent on your radar. And again, thinking the choice and abundance the embarrassment of riches in wrestling. How does WCW start to evolve for you? I came in like right towards the end of it being like really a, an NWA promotion because it was still kind of a territory into the early 90s. And then there's some stuff that WCW does without giving NWA a heads up. And then that relationship falls apart. So I came in like right at the end of that, right around when they started signing some of the WWE names. So I watched it pretty much straight through from 94 until it, 93, 94 until it shut down. Where does Sting appear? Uh, so Sting's around for a while. Sting started out in a tag team with the Ultimate Warrior. Of course. Right, right. And then was Surfer Sting for a while, had his best friend Robocop show up in 1990. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and... I do remember that happening. Yeah. And then because there's questions of his loyalty... Around 96, 97 is when he starts to become the crow sting that he still is. Sort of more gothic character, yeah. Yeah. When he shows up in the rafters with the vulture. Yeah, okay. That all around that era. Which is funny, that's kind of the era where it starts to take a dive. Really? Yeah, that's, that's like right in the heart of the era that Hogan and a bunch of other people have full creative control. So that whole situation with Hogan, Hall, and Nash coming in is incredible to show kind of the way that WCW misplayed a lot of things. When they first came in, WCW way overpaid them, just kind of to entice them away from WWE. And they get full creative control, and you start getting bizarre things. Like that match to end that storyline with Sting, the finish was supposed to be Nick Patrick has a fast three count. The referee, he had been aligned with NWO at some point. He was chosen at random. Supposed to be a uh, fast count. Bret Hart would come out, debut. They need to restart the match, get a good count. Brett counts a three. Sting wins this kind of dusty finish. But at some point, apparently, Hogan went to Bischoff and went to Nick Patrick and said, just count it normal. Just a normal three count. It might not make sense, but it'll look Sting look dumb. It'll make Bret Hart look dumb. I'll still be strong. I'll be at the top of the card. And then we'll just deal with it later. And it became just like a nothing finish to a year-long, really hot build. Like the storyline was great. And then it builds to that and just kind of falls apart because Hogan, as is so often the case with him, doesn't want to look even a little bit weak. And that's where kind of it starts to go downhill. WWE starts to hit a stride around the same time. And that's where you start to see that switch go. To that point, 
that to me is is an original example or an, at least an original example to me of where the doors start to go open because you're getting i guess you always did have this two-way street of talent going from wcw we touched on one of the previous episodes about irs for example micro tunder doesn't live in any place for me except as irs within the wwf yet he had several characters and prominence in the wcw mm-hmm. but you've got this two-way street where talent is going back and forth at that point right most significantly or perhaps two most significant examples hogan leaving the wwf in 93 and going mm-hmm. and then brett obviously after the screw job you know perhaps one of the most famous slash infamous images of wrestling is Bret Hart stood in the ring at the Survivor Series and drawing in the air the WCW lettering, as well as spitting on Vince. That was interesting to me, because then I drop off somewhere then, sort of 94, 95, we talked about this, Mm -hmm. just falls inadvertently off my radar. But talents that I had grown to love and were real fans of, I didn't end up following their careers. And does this open door work? Can you keep running backwards and forwards between promotions? Granted, it's work. It's trying to get to what you just described, having more creative control. You know, the WWFE have a very specific style of how they manage talents. It's well discussed. Does it work going backwards and forwards? Did it work at that time for you seeing, you know, like Ric Flair appear in the WWF ring at WrestleMania 8? Did that make sense at the time? I think it probably did because you're not too far removed from that NWA thing. Like wrestling fans probably knew Ric Flair, even if they solely watched WWF, kind of in the back of their head. Like they knew the name. They might not know his work, but they know like, oh, this guy's a big deal. Hogan, when he goes to WCW, like he's the Santa Claus of wrestling, right? Like every, you show picture, somebody a picture of Hulk Hogan, they know who he is. So when he shows up, that increases the, the viewership of WCW, which is funny because that's the exact model that Vince uses to buy up indie talent to try to run out the AWA, right? It's money, it's TV, it's stealing their stars, it's Hogan, right? So Ted Turner kind of plays the same game that Vince did in the 80s. Excellent point. Yeah, excellent point. I think going the other way, like somebody who's like kind of middling in one company can go to another company and make their career. And I I instantly think like Dustin Rhodes, right? He's the natural in WCW. He's kind of this like milk toast second generation guy. And then it becomes gold dust. And even what he does today is still, it's kind of the, the middle of that Venn diagram of those two characters, right? He's still the natural Dustin Rhodes, but he looks kind of like gold dust still. So that jump allowed him to really give himself this 20 year run. What were standout moments through that overlap for you? Again, you saw a lot more of WCW in real time and there was some real provocative stuff, wasn't there? Back and forth between the company. A- another real good example of that would be Medusa, Lundra Blaze, sort of throwing the WWF women's title in the garbage on WCW television. I mean, that ruffled some significant feathers. Yeah, yeah. It really contributed to this entity of different products and, you know, enjoying different things in different places or watching the two compete against each other, you know? Yeah. And Flair had something similar when he came out and he was the real world's champion in WWF. And he was supposed to have the NWA title. And they were like, well, that's a step too far. So I just took an old tag team title and blurted out. So it seemed like he had the belt. So like, that's an, an earlier example of them kind of playing with that. I'm trying to think of like them going back and forth. Because I think there's standout moments in both. DX taking the tank to the arena that WCW's in is one of those like classic ones I show all the time. I just saw... Somebody was posted a piece of an article about that 
And I guess Vince told them, when you go do this, WCW is going to be there. And Meng was there, who's like notorious tough guy, like bar fights, tearing people's teeth out with the bare hands type of tough guy. And he was Haku in the WWE. And Vince said, yeah, go do this. If Haku comes out, turn around. <laughs> so, which could have been like a dream confrontation. Haku out and pissed off and right. X-Pac trying to run away. But that's like the standout of the two interacting in a way. I guess the other one being on a flip side, that famous call from Nitro, where Raw was pre-recorded and it was, we've learned Mankind, who is here as Cactus Jack, is winning the title tonight. That'll put butts in the seats. Then everybody turned over to Raw <laughs> to watch that happen. So that's another like standout of the two interacting and kind of taking shots at each other. And I feel like those become kind of iconic, like that tank thing shows up in every DX documentary, every WCW documentary. The Battle Pop Buttons seat shows up in everything about the Monday Night Wars. So those I think are a lot of people's go-to of that interaction. Thinking back to that sort of statement that I've made a couple times, that WCW didn't live and breathe in real time for me back in the 90s when I was an original fan, Eric Bischoff says in interviews, especially modern day interviews, that when he took the reins, part of his agenda was to create less of the comic book caricature-like, larger-than-life characters and really bring sort of a realism, a real persona to wrestling. And that really is something that resonated for me at the time, as I've shared on a previous episode. WWF got this, like, Big Sky contract, so Superstars of Wrestling and Wrestling Primetime and all the pay-per-views are on, like, Sky and stuff. WCW got some airtime at, like, midnight on a Friday night on one of the newer crappier terrestrial channels that you really had to go looking for it to find it mm -hmm. and i do remember seeing it from time to time and the aesthetic just being much more raw again pun unintended <laughs> not really buying into some of these characters yeah because i guess at the point in time thinking in you know in the mindset that i'm watching wrestling at that point in time as well i couldn't buy into any of the characters and thinking about choice and fandom then mm -hmm. that's what steered me i think more exclusive to the WWF product. It was interesting to see as the Monday Night Wars and as the WCW, you know, competition rose, WWE definitely started to adopt that more, didn't they? They sort of stripped away. There wasn't the garbage guy. There wasn't the clown. There wasn't, you know, <laughs> people of that nature. There were just these like Eddie Guerrero, obviously coming over from WCW, you John Cena's, you know, getting to a more sort of actual persona. Yeah, there's not gimmick names. Guys come in with names that are either their actual names or could be real names right? without this big flesh character. And I think, I mean, I think Bischoff is kind of instrumental in that. You're right, because he, when he comes in, it's Jim Hurd, who's like famous for terrible ideas. He's the one who said, Ric Flair is getting old. Let's shave his head and turn him into a gladiator called Spartacus. What? <laughs> like, <laughs> this is the face of the company. And then Bischoff comes in, like you said, and let's kind of change that. And I think when he starts to pull in WWE guys, that's where everybody starts thinking, okay, now how do we take this to the next step and change it to what people are used to? Yeah. And it's also very much of the time, right? I mean, that's like the life of the shock jock, right? You got Howard Stern, you got Imus, you got Opie and Anthony. That's where the culture was, right? So you want to get people who are into that stuff. You got to go with a little bit more adult content. Bit more provoking, bit more provocative, bit more on the line. Right. And you got Paul Heyman, who's already doing that. So... The influence of ECW on these two big companies, even before they were the third big company, can't really be denied either. Let's touch on that a second, because Paul Heyman, inarguably, mm -hmm. has ended up and was at the time a massive name. And 
while WWE and WCW are in this existence of sort of going back and forth, as you just said, ECW is in the picture, isn't it? So in terms of the choice, the availability and choice in products for fans at the time, yes, your big box was WCW, WWE, but ECW were out there and doing well and growing fast. And of course, they get absorbed as well, don't they? We touched on some of those stars in the Bloodbath and Beyond episode because they had, you know, the Terry Funks, the Mick Foley's originally, like, they had a stable of incredible talents who were putting out, mm-hmm. albeit a very specific product, an incredible product. They never really sort of did become, did they? I, I don't want to make a political analogue. It never really grew beyond a two-party system, did it? Yeah, and I think that's, I think there's a lot of things in that. Heyman didn't have the TV contacts that Ted Turner, Vince McMahon did. He is kind of infamous for bouncing checks. So there were a few guys who were super loyal, like Tommy Dreamer was incredibly loyal. He was there until the end. But a lot of guys were just like, look, I can't stick around if this is the case. Like Raven goes, yeah, Sandman goes and becomes hardcore hack in WCW. So I think he had a lot of other stuff kind of getting in the way of him getting that big, even though he had working relationships with the WWE at the time. He was on their payroll in some capacity kind of at the height of ECW. If you haven't seen those couple crossover ECW Monday Night Raws, go out and find those. They're incredible. It's kind of the first exposure on a large scale of those. And it's the super antagonistic, like Jerry Lawler and Heyman basically getting a slap fight at the announce table. And that's like <laughs> the tone of the entire night. It's it's a super fun show. Yeah, I gotta go back and see those for sure. Just to jump back for a second where you bring Jerry Lawler's name up again, tying back to that A&E Treasures series that we were talking about in the beginning one of the things they highlight talking about the territories talking about jerry lawler talking about the treasures is lawler is instrumental even predating vince in making wrestling prominent in pop culture is crossing that pop culture line Mm -hmm. what i'm talking about obviously is of course the andy kaufman program series of of interactions that he had with the matches Mm -hmm. the david letterman piece where he absolutely slugs Andy uh, and people don't know whether it's a work or a shoot or what's going on you know yeah but that really triggers doesn't it for wrestling to grow into the size of what it did as a whole to cultivate this massive fandom Lawler's is instrumental in that dynamic Lawler is instrumental in making wrestling visible in mainstream pop culture which I think as we get into more modern day sort of things that are happening with AEW, seeing Cody do kind of a game show with Snoop Dogg and things of that nature. Now, whether it's as effective or not is a, is a different conversation, right? But mm-hmm. trying to bring this crossover back of pop culture and wrestling, WWE are doing it. We talked about Bad Bunny Wrestling most recently at WrestleMania. Lawler seems to be quite single-handedly responsible for it. Yeah, and I think that's something that people kind of dip into the well all the time on. Like, how do we get somebody who's relevant, but not just in wrestling, to get more eyes on this? So you mentioned Bad Bunny. Like, in the 90s, they had Chuck Norris show up to shows. The RoboCop reference with Sting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pamela Anderson at Mania. Was that Mania 13? Mm-hmm. So it is something they keep going back to. But I think that Andy Kaufman one is one of the super, super important ones. And Lawler himself, like, he, he's the king of Memphis for a reason. Right, like he himself was such a big name in Memphis that I would imagine it'd be double the impact in kind of Southern territory. Yeah, especially with the the character that Kaufman was playing and all the interviews where he's being the idiot Southerner and like just it's it's amazing he wasn't stabbed walking through an arena when he showed up in Memphis. You know, <laughs> well, correct me if I'm wrong as well, but sort of 
that was how Lawler's interaction with Kaufman came about, wasn't it? Because Kaufman was doing all of these spots sort of... Mm -hmm essentially taking the piss out of wrestling, sort of mocking wrestling, mm -hmm. and was doing spots with women in wrestling rings. And the interaction came about, like, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? Why don't you fight me? Yeah. And then they've got just then this astronomical trajectory together, don't they? Again, that David Letterman spot, watching that A&E program where Lawler's reflecting, like, Andy in the green room's like, you got to punch me. I'm going to say something to poke you, provoke you. And I want you to punch me. Yeah. And Jerry Lawler's like, I'm not going to punch you. <laughs> and they sort of get out on the stage and Lawler's got in mind that a plan's going down a certain way. And Kaufman just takes it to another level. And so Lawler gets up and just slugs him. And, you know, millions of people see that. David Letterman doesn't know whether it's real or not or, you know, just incredible. And that's like middle of the era of kayfabe. So like nobody knows if that's, uh, if that's real or not. Yeah, good point. Again, just to touch on that A&E episode, there's a photographer, I forget his name now, but he did a lot of like photography for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, things of that nature, and was on the, the Letterman set when this all went down. And part of what this treasure search is, is to find the neck brace that Kaufman wore on the show. And sorry, spoiler alerts again. This photographer does have it. Okay. And they're recounting this story. And to your point, Hyatt Kayfabe, He's like this close to Kaufman and Lawler, like he's super tight with both of them. And he shows up at Lawler's hotel room and it's like, dude, what, what just fucking went down? Like, what is this? What are you doing? And he sort of says, I hear the hotel room door open and then close. And he turns around and there's Andy Kaufman in Lawler's uh, hotel room giggling. And he was like, then I realized what was going down. That's yeah, that's an incredible story in wrestling history for sure. Yeah. Again, for a side sidebar point, it's that sort of stuff. I really hope that there is a good museum. I know there is an actual wrestling hall of fame outside of the WWE as well, but some of these stories deserve to be told because they're they're amazing, aren't they? Yeah. So then, obviously, to get back to where choice, abundance, embarrassment of riches, we know how the WC story goes. Goodbye, WCW around two thousand two ish, and <laughs> you know, to my memory, to my understanding. For a good period of time then, for a good decade or so, WWE have got the stranglehold, have got the monopoly on the market. I don't know that there's a great deal of stuff going on, certainly not publicized or commercially in my radar from like an indie's point of view. There's just such a stretch then where the only game in town is the WWE, isn't it? Yeah, you really do have to kind of look for it. I think like the second closest thing for a long time is what's now Impact. And I don't think they did themselves favors when they started it. So it's Jeff and Jerry Jarrett open it. They call it NWA Total Nonstop Action because I think it'll be provocative for people to talk about like, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch some TNA tonight. <laughs> so it starts off in a very kind of like bro-y, lascivious naming that I don't think does them any favors for how good the product was. That's the wild thing. Like Impact was really good. It was similar to you talking about how you caught WCW. I just happened upon a TNA show on TV, which they weren't on TV for a long time, just randomly on like a Sunday morning. And I was like, what is this? It was a six-sided ring, like all those Lucha promotions you see. We'll talk, I'm sure, about being kind of a sports-based show. But the top was a banner with the two wrestlers' names on them. Every match had a time limit. So in between their names was a countdown of how much time was left. So it was like a really unique presentation. 
at the same time, the stuff they were doing was super cool. You had people like Elix Skipper, where he does this famous tightrope walk across a cage into a Hurricane Rana. Really incredible stuff. But you really had to search for it until it got a TV deal. And then what it does is when it kind of blows up with some of the Kurt Angle stuff, Christian Cage shows up. It's when Sting shows up in there. So all these big names start showing up in Impact. And I think that's when it starts to draw eyes. But again, that's not really until 2009-ish. So yeah, almost a full decade where they're just kind of simmering and growing underneath. It's funny because from a feeling point of view, and this may be a completely unfair sort of consideration or reflection, TNA at that point in time to me, and again, I say this just from an opinion and and a feeling point of view, it felt like a little bit of a where careers were going to go in twilight, let me say it like that. That's simply a statement that I didn't see any of the TNA product to that end. I've gone back and seen parts of it now and seen some incredible matches and seen what was going on and Mm -hmm. recognizing what I'm saying was not a fair sort of feeling and opinion about it. But it was like, okay, Vince is done with me. Here's where I can go to kind of now graze out, twilight out, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of the unfortunate part of that timing where they start to really get on TV. Not long after they're on TV, Bischoff and Hogan come in and now it's the same old thing. The six-sided ring goes away. The booking feels very samey. If you look at the big names in Impact when it started, it's like some of the homegrown talent. AJ Styles is in there. Right. And he was there for years, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the early days of Christopher Daniels, Kazarian, Samoa Joe. The book's had a stint there. Yeah. As Generation Me. Yeah. But all these names that like uh, CM Punk did a run there. Raven did a run there. Like all these names that are actually really important in 2021. We're in TNA in like 2006, but nobody saw the product until it was Hogan and Bischoff cutting 20-minute promos and Eric Bischoff's son involved in one of the key storylines and this very kind of WCW-feeling product. I remember seeing, and obviously I've gone back and seen it, the arena as well with the opposing ramps, the opposing entrances. It almost looked like something out of Mad Max meets Total Recall meets Running Man, like sort of that 80s, you know, talk about Robocop. That 80s Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, slew of movies of a sci-fi realm. (laughs) It looked like it was lifted straight from that. And I have seen like the banner that you're talking about, like he gave a gladiatorial combat and combat sports feel to it, didn't it? Yeah. And like I said, it all just kind of, they were looking for a way to boost its popularity and they kind of went the wrong way with it. Dixie Carter gets a lot of the blame for that when she comes in kind of like Jim Hurd in WCW without really a wrestling background. And just kind of goes to, well, what's worked in the past. Whereas what was working for them was doing things that were kind of innovative. So I think that's always kind of a balance people have to try to strike. Because at this point, to be honest, you're always just kind of competing with WWE. Mm-hmm. So I think every company that comes along has to kind of try to figure out what's that balance to keep us competitive. That's an excellent point. Because if you think about some of the innovations that happened, and the following point is kind of reflective to what just happened this week with the Blood and Guts match, the War Games match. Yeah. Looking back at some of those WCW pay-per-views with the War Games, again, Dusty, talk about the Rhodes family, as I as my Rhodes heart is prone to do. <laughs> Dusty's responsible for a lot of this stuff, isn't he? The two rings in War Games. They had the World War Three matches with like the three rings and just like a full-on battle royale. I mean, mm-hmm. there was some real innovation, TNA with the six-sided ring the aesthetic of that arena like there was some real compelling stuff happening then that you absolutely could enjoy the wwe product but you had different flavors of ice cream to kind of go delve elsewhere as well you know yeah and i think those fingerprints are all over 
your major wrestling companies today. Some for more obvious reasons than others, but even Dusty kind of being the guy at the perfect time at NXT for all your big name WWE people. All of your top of your roster that was in the same NXT class, they all talk about how Dusty was the guy for them at the PC. Needless to say, Dusty is a legend both from a wrestling point of view and from a creative and just a mind in a business. Him, Lawler, you know, if you were if you want to dance around sort of the Mount Rushmore of the geniuses in the uh, mm-hmm. the creation of wrestling or the the continuation of wrestling, Dusty Lawler are, are certainly two names in the argument, aren't they? And Vince McMahon did not like Dusty. Like, that's why... The polka dots, right? Yeah, the polka dots come in trying to make him look like an idiot. Virgil, being like the manservant of the Million Dollar Man, is named after Dusty Rhodes, because his real name is Virgil Runnels. Right. Akeem, the African Dream, who's this kind of like dancing buffoon, is a parody of the American Dream. So there's like repeated shots at Dusty from WWF throughout time. And of course, we've touched on this before, continues generationally. Oh, yeah. Goldus character, the androgynous, gay panic, provocative, you know, oh, you're Dusty's son, then we're going to smother you in gold makeup and go have you rub your crotch on people in the ring. And much like Dustin did with the Goldust character, Dusty, of course, it rose out of that, didn't it? He embraced the polka dots mm-hmm. and was more over than Vince probably liked. And that was true for Dustin as well, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think for Cody, when he gets that Stardust gimmick and it's this like weird kind of knockoff of Dustin or of Goldust. And then he goes on to have like the most fun spots in that Mania ladder match where he's like pulling out the bedazzled ladders that he's giving special cosmic names to and, <laughs> and just running with this thing that he'd been saddled with and being super entertaining. We are heading towards sort of the Cody Dustin evolution, uh, as well as, you know, we decided to touch on the books and sort of the AEW scene coming about. Before we kind of just get there for a second, Mm -hmm. of course, in this period now, in the mid-2000s, I mean, of course, New Japan Wrestling is where I'm going. New Japan Wrestling has been around for years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. There is this place in this window of time, isn't it, where sort of, it seems WWE have the monopoly or stranglehold on talent. That isn't exclusively the case because there is the New Japan scene. And of course, talking about AJ, he leaves Impact and goes to Japan and looks amazing in Japan. Talk about the Good Brothers when we were talking about Finjuice in the open there. You've got this Bullet Club scene coming together. Yeah, Japan, they've had significant talent actually starts to really put some significant talent Mm -hmm. because there isn't a lot of other things going on around it you really see where people are going at least that's the way i experienced it where does nj play into that window of time for you i think formation of bullet club is the thing that really puts it on the radar in the u.s and kind of makes it something that now the wwe has to contend with because none of those names were really big stateside but kind of seeing this like exciting new thing in new japan i think brought people to it and I got so pop- like the Wrestle Kingdom show is always January 4th. Doesn't matter what day of the week. And it was the point where people were setting alarms to watch it live and taking the fifth off of work so they didn't get anything spoiled. Like right around that time, it really starts to blow up. And you have all those other big names at the time that are pulling people. They start watching it like, oh, Nakamura's great. Okada's great. Tanahashi's great. Ishii's great. So they have all this great talent that now this new thing, I think, that people are interested in is drawing eyes to. That just, it blows up. They carve out a mainstay, don't they, in the American audience from that point. It's visible and it exists in you and it's there, isn't it? It can't be ignored from the WWE point of view, right? Yeah, to the point where 
I think that there's, they're still doing shows in the US that are New Japan branded. A lot of the shows that go up on their streaming network have English dubs with Kevin Kelly doing commentary, whereas before you're watching it just in Japanese. So I think you're right, they do have a huge footprint in the US right now. Some of the G1 Supercards, they started the tournament in the state. I think it was the G1 29. Mm. They had events start an arena in Texas. Yeah. And then the competition obviously culminates over weeks and finishes in Japan. Somewhere in this period, indie wrestling and indie territories start to resurface, don't they? Like we've talked about and recognizing, unfortunately, through the speaking out movement, some of these companies may have not existed in such great light or in such super light, but you start to see your Beyonds, your Evolves, your Chikaras, your PWGs out on the West Coast. This stuff starts to come to evolution, doesn't it? Right. The Young Bucks, the name that we've already mentioned, again, both in the context of Impact and being significant in the Bullet Club, they spend years on the PWG circuit, don't they? Just honing their craft. Yeah. What do you think is the trigger to some of the indies coming back? That's a great question. It could just be that there's like increased interest in it. I think just kind of more and more stuff going up online probably helps too. It's not like tape trading used to be where you have to find somebody who has it. It's just you go on to high spots and you order the DVD, right? So I think there's just kind of more exposure to other products. And then you see guys and you see other shows they work. So I think kind of the early easy ways of seeing some of these shows probably helped. Yeah, that's a good example, isn't it? Once you don't have to sort of <laughs> swap a VHS tape where you can just upload a file, the accessibility of the media, the accessibility of the of the content is is infinitely more um, more easy to do, isn't it? And they have like Roku channels and Apple TV channels. Instead of being hunched over my laptop, I could be watching, or the DVDs, I could be watching a PWG show on my TV in my living room. Granted, it's four months after it happened because they were notorious low paying <laughs> DVDs out, but I wouldn't see that product otherwise. I'm not entirely sure the indies went away per se did they but it's kind of you think the territories lived prominently when they existed it's bringing the indies back to your to the forefront of your mindset so they're there aren't they? you know they're there you know stuff going on around the country talk about the showcases over wrestlemania weekend there bringing all the talents together those family reunions those matches that sort of put different promotions and put different matches together mm-hmm. there's a visibility to it and of course getting to modern day choices in wrestling now which is totally an embarrassment of riches mm-hmm. you can't possibly carve out the time to consume it all in a given week even just the weekly tv content in the weekly schedule of tv content which we've tried to add up before and i think now it's about 412 hours of tv viewing per week of wrestling <laughs> an embarrassment of riches getting to modern day the story is well publicized you get the dave Meltzer tweet which says nobody can fill an arena outside of wwe Indie wrestling still isn't, you know, at a prominent point. You can't fill an arena and Cody Rhodes takes the bait. Yeah. And you get All In, which is a phenomenal show. Talk about the collaboration that they got pulling that together. Yeah. I had just recently gone back and watched it front to back again and didn't quite realize. I've seen it a couple times and the more names got familiar to me, like not realizing Chelsea Green was on that show. Yeah. Because I hadn't a clue who she was until she was Chelsea Green in NXT. Right. All in happens. And now you get the explosion of AEW. Tony Khan comes to the table, puts a promotion together. And for the first time, basically, in nearly two decades, you've two massive entities back on the table for choice in wrestling. Chat me through sort of your exposure to like all in happening and where you sort of 
followed that in mindset and how that tracked for you? I remember it just kind of coming up that they were doing it. I think it was ROH affiliated too. So there was a lot of push from ROH, but I think it, it got massive exposure because it's exactly what you're saying. It's that kind of, oh, they're going to try this. And then watching it felt, it was kind of exciting, right? Because it was like, oh, this might be something. And then it was a couple months before they actually had that video of them announcing AEW. That's right. Yeah, I think All In happened September. It was Labor Day weekend of 2018, wasn't it? And I don't think the AEW announcement sort of out on the plaza there at Dailies is until maybe January of 2019? Yeah, it was a little because there's a ton of speculation of, are these just going to be one-off shows or are they actually going? And people like trolling the patent office to see if any new names have been copyrighted type of speculation going on. And then that was super exciting because as soon as they did the announcements, you saw that it was just basically just Tony Khan funded PWG. You know, like (laughs) Excalibur has a ton of money to spend on this show now. (laughs) So you knew it was going to be way different. But it's a similar model we keep coming back to. It's somebody with a ton of money, with TV connections, who's able to get these big names that have been in other promotions to pull their eyes to the screen. Well said, it's having that vehicle to put it on the prominent stage, isn't it? That said, the indies are starting to do that a little bit, aren't they? Certainly not to the magnitude or to the caliber. When I say caliber, I mean literally the aesthetic. I mean, it's not on TNT, but being able to have like, you know, an IWTV app or a Fight TV app, you are able to get the media into people's hands more directly. Yeah, and like all your indies kind of still do that. There's still kind of a territory model to it where there's people who are prominent in one area and then they face challenges from wherever. They have the independent wrestling champion who bounces between promotions. Spoiler alert again, Wheeler Yuta just took it off of Lee Moriarty at the Beyond Show. So now where he goes as far as all those indie companies on IWTV, he'll bring that title with him. Tying into the Edith Surreal spot that we were talking about in the last episode. I mean, that's, yeah. if folks want to tie some story and continuity there across the indies, follow that storyline. <laughs> oh, that was just an IWTV match at Family Reunion. And now it's a Beyond story. Right. And Beyond having so many people going into AEW is just kind of, when you watch a Dark or a Main Show or whatever, there's so much Beyond talent on those shows. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about All In again for a second, you touched on the collaboration. So, There was ROH involvement. There was obviously NJ involvement because Okada was on the match. It really brought together, didn't it, a collaborative effort, which certainly not my intention or certainly not my tone to make a disparaging comment against the WWE. But right there is the seedlings of where this, again, for the 11th time, this podcast alone, we're talking about the Forbidden Doors. There is the inklings that there's an appetite for wrestling just to be a cross-collaborative family. Okada can be NJ, but he could show up on AEW. Kenny can be the AEW champion, but he will go to Mexico and wrestle. I think we touched on it a little bit with John Moxley showing up at spring break while there was a house show going on across the other side of Florida that it seems to be, and of course we speculate, but it seems to be Tony Khan really is interested. We know he's he's an absolute nerdist wrestling fan, right? He's just an absolute fanboy of wrestling. Oh yeah. I've listened to interviews that he's conducted and I'm in complete awe at his savant level of understanding of wrestling, remembering the statistics, matches, spots. Like he's just got a wealth of information, hasn't he? So he's a total fanboy, total nerdist of wrestling. Yeah. Really wants to see these storylines. Like why does it have to be carved out? And I think sticking with the theme of our discussion here, That's something that's really appetizing in the choice of wrestling right now. It has come full circle from the territories because 
Jerry Lawler going to Georgia or Florida and having matches with talent there and moving the, the belts around and having them visible on different things. A good example of that, actually, thinking back to The Undertaker and Kane, The Undertaker and Glenn Jacobs mm-hmm. have a match when Glenn is on the Indies somewhere and WWF bring The Undertaker as a talent and this crossover. Yeah, I think that's in Memphis. Yeah. I think so, yeah. That's really appealing to me as a fan of wrestling right now. If you think about that menu, if I think about that smorgasbord of choice, I watch all of the storage. I don't watch all of the stuff. That's a complete lie because I don't have 900 hours a week to <laughs> dedicate to it. <laughs> but I'd really like to try and catch as much of it as, as entirely possible. But it's neat to see things juxtaposing into to different areas. Is it changing your outlook as a fan? Is it changing your feeling as a fan at the moment? Yeah, I mean, just to, the fact that there's so much that's unpredictable now. Wrestling can feel very samey. You know, it's going to happen. But now with all of this, it's very... I, I can't predict what's going to happen or who's going to show up or any of it at this point, just because there is so much cross-promotion and people showing up or, like you said... Like, oh, what's that belt that Kenny has now? I should probably go check that out. So it does, it is kind of exciting to see how this is all overlapping and wanting to know where it all goes. Yeah, definitely. I have a provocative question for you of my own part as well. And I will say, disclaimer, I don't necessarily subscribe to one opinion or not of this, but as AEW has evolved and with certain decisions and choices they have made to do, for example, bringing the commentary partnership of Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone back feels very reminiscent to something that happened before. Bringing Sting back feels very reminiscent. Mm. Cody, I think he's really the driving force of trying to reclaim like the Bash at the Beach name and reclaim some of his dad's IP or creative entities were, right? Are they still different enough? And again, this is just being provocative here. Curious about your thought. Are they in danger of being too much of a WCW parody? I think that's like a common criticism they get when they announce somebody showing up. They're like, oh, another... I mean, when Christian Cage signed, they were like, oh, great, another old WWE guy. But I don't think any of them are solo in main storylines, right? Like, Sting is there, but Sting is there as part of the story that's building Darby Allin and Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. Shivani is so much fun to listen to. Agreed. Um, Jim Ross has his moments. Where it's just like, oh, okay, like, (laughs) but Shivani's still great. So I don't think they're kind of in that danger of taking these like long established names and pushing them too much. It seems like they're being really conscious of how do we use this as a storyline for somebody else. Even uh, Cody not going for the title in that stipulation, kind of the signal of I'm one of the quote big names, but I am not a main event big name in this company that I helped start. So I I think they're more conscious of that than WCW was with Hogan. I think for me, I'm sort of being a little jestfully gamey, jestfully provocative in sort of just throwing that around a little bit. You know, my feeling of it is what's the harm? What's the foul in cherry picking things that worked? We're not reinventing the entire wheel here as we've come full circle from here is all this history in the territories where there were multitudes of different promotions and talents and they converged into maybe national names. And, you know, I think it's just kind of the ebb and flow of trying to keep the business fresh and relevant and entertaining and again singing to my road's heart <laughs> can't really blame cody to want to sort of honor and reflect his dad why not try to go after some of the ip creative stuff and there are ways to do those things fresh and new again you know blood and guts was a war games match it looked like a war games match yeah but it's a good idea it's a good match 
And, you know, this was the first one and it had its had its twist that, mm-hmm. you know, Tully jumped, Bryce got the keys, so the match ended up on the cage. So you got yeah. you got a little bit of a hell in the cell effort. Yeah. I think it, it's warranted as well that people, the talents, the wrestlers themselves, they're looking for places to work to do different creative things as well, aren't they? So I'm certainly not saying this with any sanctimony. I'm enjoying it all for what it is at the surface value. I've enjoyed AEW as it's come about. I thought the first Double or Nothing pay-per-view was extraordinary. Now, All In was extraordinary, but Double or Nothing for me is its WrestleMania because that's where it brands itself as AEW and that's where it sort of becomes itself all out, then becomes, you know, if you want to call it like their SummerSlam or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that first Double or Nothing, to be able to put a match on Cody versus Dustin, Mm -hmm. to deliver that kind of match with essentially no storytelling, very limited storytelling on YouTube, and deliver the story that was told. There was something special happening with that organization. Yeah, and I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying with just the minds that they have and the experience they have of how to put that together. I mean, Dustin's been working for almost 30 years, if not 30 years. So just the wealth of knowledge that he has from being in the business for so long has to be invaluable for them. And I think they've also done a good job with picking people for backstage. Dean Malenko coming out the other day, getting a shout. Like, so great. It's definitely an exciting time, isn't it? It's it's going to new and innovative places. One of the things I really like AEW is doing is they're sticking to that traditional formula of pay-per-views as well. As a fan, thinking about the absolute abundance of content, with all due respect to the WWE side of things, I'm not sure I need a pay-per-view every three weeks. There's not enough story build. There's not enough for me to be like, really get into... Daniel Bryan versus Roman Reigns, when two weeks later it's going to be Cesaro versus Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan's is gone. I do like the big four pay-per-view. I think the WWE big four pay-per-views still live in prominence for those reasons. You still think Mania, Slam, Survivor Series and Rumble, don't you? Double or Nothing, All Out, Full Gear, Revolution. I like that. I like to be able to see the stories build. It makes watching Dynamite Weekly a bit more enticing as a fan for me. Yeah, and just that idea of letting storylines kind of breathe and organically grow. And if something's working, you can run with it because you got time to. If it's not, you got time to modify it. So it's not just like a nothing match at the pay-per-view. Yeah, just the, the time to let the stories breathe, I think, is super important in that. As we're talking about Double or Nothing, on the AW side of the coin, essentially, as we mentioned, Double or Nothing is their WrestleMania, their first pay-per-view under that All Elite Wrestling brand. Double or Nothing 2021 is May 30th. Preview, we are sticking with our love of a good gimmick here at the Interstate Wrestling Podcast. (laughs) We're going to double down, aren't we, Josh? It's double episodes or nothing for us. So teasing our next episode that will follow this one, we're going to take a look at how the Double or Nothing card builds and touch on how the Dynamites leading to it really shape that up because uh, they do put out a decent pay-per-view as well. I'm excited to see where it goes. As we're recording, there's not a whole lot formed for this card. I think it's still just the two championship matches. But after your Blood and Guts match, there's some directions this could go. So I'm excited to see how that forms over the next couple weeks. I'm hoping for a Jericho MGF one-on-one SmackDown. Yeah, that'd be fun. But um, yeah, massive topic, meaty topic, staying consistent here. More content than we could possibly chew off and lots to revisit. Definitely. Wrestling for us is a great time right now, isn't it? So much to choose so much to jump into, so much content to try and consume. It's a near impossibility. And so many areas of opportunity that are getting harder and harder to predict. Absolutely. With that said, Josh, we should probably start to uh, to bring this home. 
We should give a shout out to our fellow family members on the Lunchador Podcast Network. We, of course, have got the Beer Review Journal. We've got Anomaly Presents. We've got Mimosas with My Besties and Caleb versus Self. Some real great selection of podcasts, some real different content to jump into. I think Matt and Blue just shared on a recent BRJ. It's really just groups of people really passionate about the content that they're talking about. So uh, check out any one of those podcasts wherever you find your podcasts. Mm-hmm. You want to give a shout out to where folks can find us, Josh? Yeah, so we're on Twitter at ISWrestlePod, Instagram the same at ISWrestlePod. And of course, as always, thank you to Alien Trilogy for use of their song Michinoku Driver as our opening and closing theme. Thanks for all the support, folks. Let us know what's good for you, matches you enjoy, things that we should be paying attention to. We really appreciate the support. We'll see you next time. Take care. See you later. Michinoku! Drive